The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. people have gathered to worship, to worship you. We lift our voices and our hearts before you. We pray that the power of your Holy Spirit, O Father, might transform our lives this day. For we've gathered with needs, we've gathered with hurts. We've gathered with fear. We've gathered here with grief. As well as joy and celebration and excitement. And our prayer is, Lord, that you would take those things in our lives, the emotions, the the sin, all that's going on in our lives, and just do a powerful new work in your people today. And for those here today, Father, who don't know you, give them repentance and salvation. You're a God of mercy. You're the God of grace. Grant those things to your people today. Because we're sinful. We're a sinful bunch. So, Father, even as we think of our sin now and confess it before you, we pray that you forgive. Make us a faithful people, a faithful body to serve you, to shine brightly in this community, to hunger after seeing lives changed, rescuing people from the enemy to restoring souls by the power of your word thank you for your work in us continue your work in us and as we just sang cause your word to come alive today even today speak through our pastor He's prepared, Lord, and we pray that you would bless his preparation. That you would speak through him in such a way and with power so that our lives might be changed. We leave this place different people today. For your glory and your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we continue our journey through New Testament book of 1 Peter. This morning we give attention to verses 18 through 21. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I want to pose a question for you by way of introduction this morning for you to think about. A question for you to to simply consider for a moment. 
as you sit here this morning as a Christian, do you primarily as a Christian have rights or responsibilities? I want you to think about that question for a moment. As Christians, do we primarily possess rights or do we possess responsibilities? Let that marinate in your mind for just a second. Rights or responsibilities? It's an important question for 2016 American Christians to ask because we live in the midst of a culture that is absolutely obsessed with personal freedom and personal rights. Hardly a day goes by that you, if you pay attention to the news at all, um, the bad news is what it really is, right? The bad news. It's not just the news. It's the bad news. If you, if you read it or you turn it on, it's not the good news. It's the bad news. But if you turn it on and watch it on television or if you read it online or if you still get the, um, you know, the printed paper, Pastor Frank still gets one of those on paper that you fold and read, you find stories about conflicts. And you find stories about problems and you find stories about issues and problems often, if not exclusively, for the most part, surrounding people asserting their rights. Somebody feels like they have a right that's been violated, something they deserve hasn't been done or something that they don't deserve has been done to them. And so either there are rights that are being unmet or rights that are being violated and they're upset and they're angry and they're fighting back. We have been inundated with this publicly in our culture in recent days where uh, hardly, hardly can you watch the news without there being some protest, somebody protesting about rights, somebody kneeling during a national anthem over rights that they feel are being violated. People protesting, people challenging and rejecting all, really all structures of authority in our culture. It surrounds us. This whole idea that we have rights and nobody has the right to tell us what to do or how to do it. That we have rights and and nobody dare encroach upon our rights or there's going to be trouble. We're going to let them know they have no business impinging upon our rights. We're people who are obsessed with our rights. And what we think we're owed. And what we think we deserve. And anyone, including any authority structure that comes into our life and says, no, you will not do that. No, you cannot behave that way, is going to become the recipient of our wrath. I don't know that I've ever seen a rejection of authority in the face of people pushing for their rights like I've seen in recent days in our culture, where people have gone to the extreme of literally executing police officers. A symbol of civil authority simply because they feel like rights have been violated. We live in a culture that's absolutely obsessed with our rights and asserting our rights and doing whatever we think we can, whatever we, do, we can do in our power to maintain or keep our rights or to punish anybody who we think is getting in the way of our rights. But I want to suggest to you this morning, as we get into 1 Peter chapter 2, we've already seen this as we worked our way a bit through this chapter, and we see it very vividly in this last portion of the chapter, that the reality is, for a Christian, the concept of asserting our rights into the culture should really be a foreign thing for us. The primary thing that lays on the footstep, the the doorsteps of a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is we have responsibilities We have responsibilities to our Lord and Savior. We have responsibilities to behave a certain way, to represent Him a certain way, and to act a certain way in order to honor Him. As Christians, we have responsibilities that trump our perceived rights. And as we're going to see this morning, what Peter has to say in this portion of the letter that he's written to believers who are suffering is going to assault us in this area of asserting our rights. It's going to assault us and it's going to expose the foolishness of much of our behavior. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to change us. It's going to change the way we act in our culture. It's going to change the way we react to the stimuli around us. It's going to change the way we 
present Christ by our behavior to those who are watching. Eusebius, ancient historian, records a story of a young man by the name of Sanctus. Sanctus lived in the middle of the second century. And there was a day when he stood before the Roman governor of his day. And his charge before him was he was a Christian. And it was in this time, in the middle of the second century, and the portion of the Roman Empire in which Sanctus lived, where there was great persecution of people who were Christians, who represented Christ. And this man, Sanctus, was brought before the governor. And he was put on trial. And his accusers were standing before him. And their whole goal was to get him to deny his faith and to recant his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They accused him. They did everything they could before the governor to trip him up. And the only answer that ever came out of Sanctus' mouth was this. I am a Christian. Every accusation that flew before him, his answer was, I am a Christian. Every attempt to trip him up, every assault on his integrity... The only words that ever came out of his mouth, I am a Christian. Sanctus was a deacon from Vienna. He had been arrested and he had been brought to trial, as I said, simply because he was a Christian. And that's all he had to say before his accusers was, I'm a Christian. He always gave the same answer. And Eusebius records this. He says, Sanctus, quote, girded himself against his accusers with such firmness that he would not even tell his name or the nation, or city to which he belonged, or whether he was a bond or a free man. But he answered in the Roman tongue to all their questions simply, I'm a Christian. When at the end of it all, it became very obvious that Sanctus had nothing else to say and would never recant his faith. He was condemned to severe torture. He was condemned to public death in the Roman amphitheater. And when the day of his execution came... He was forced to run the gauntlet. He was exposed to wild beasts. He was even fastened to a chair of burning iron. All of it in an attempt to get him to recant his faith. And throughout the whole ordeal, his accusers kept, kept accusing him and kept trying to break him and kept trying to get him through pain and torture and torment to crack and to recant his faith. But Eusebius says this. He says, even thus... They did not hear a word from Sanctus, except the confession which he had uttered from the very beginning. His dying words told of an undying commitment. To the very end, the only words that ever came out of Sanctus' mouth was, I am a Christian. An amazing story of an amazing man who had a remarkable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who stood, who stood trial, his life hanging in the balance for nothing other than being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unjust suffering from the very beginning to the very end. But Sanctus was a young man who understood that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, his very identity was, I am a Christian. It was the most important thing about him. And he understood, in light of that, it was not his place to assert any rights before the governor. He only had one responsibility, and that was to honor the Lord Jesus Christ in life and in death. He was a man who understood that as a Christian, he had responsibilities primarily, not rights. And he stands before us as a challenge and as an example An example of really the principle to which Peter speaks here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 and following. Peter here, in this part of the chapter, is talking about the general issue of submission to authority. Pastor Frank had started us down this road last week, or not last week because we were all enjoying a hurricane last week, the week before... Now, speaking to us about submission to authority, particularly in the public sphere, in relation to governmental authorities, that as believers we have a responsibility to submit to that authority, that God has placed the authority of the government around us, and our responsibility is to submit in that realm. 
he moves then into these verses that we look at this morning from looking at the issue of subjects to their government to looking at the issue of slaves to their master. And then he's going to continue this theme of submission to authority in the next section by talking about husbands and wives. And he's talking about in all of these three contexts the issue of submission to authority. The issue of the responsibility of believers to submit to authority. In our context this morning, it's the issue of servants or slaves and their masters. It's a reminder to us, and we need to remember this as we look at the text, that Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to, to believers who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in this, this group of people that's made up both of of converted Jews and also converted Gentiles. No doubt, obviously, a portion of this group to whom he is writing are people who were slaves. And he writes to these converted, believing slaves, and he writes to them to address the issue of, how do I, as a believing slave who has now come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has now come to understand the spiritual freedom that comes with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, how am I now to navigate my life in this world as a slave? What impact does salvation have on the life of a slave in his household? That's the question to which Peter writes and what Peter answers here. What, is the, what does the gospel look like when it's lived out through the lens of a slave in the first century? That's the issue here. And that's to what the issue to which Peter speaks. We need to catch a definition here before we go any further. The beginning of this verse, 18, says, Servants, if you have the ESV, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, it's translated the word here, servants. If you have some other translation, it may say the word slave. And I think the word slave is actually a better translation than the word servant here. Not because I'm brilliant or more, more intelligent than the ESV translators. But because I think it captures the idea of, of someone who is in a position that they have no, no choice or no freedom over. I think the reason why, this is at least what I understand from my reading, the reason why many of the translators have translated the word servant in English is to avoid confusion when we see the word slave because modern English readers see the word slave and we read into that term, what? The context of early American and British history, right? The slavery that we're familiar with. And the slavery to which Peter writes, or to which Peter experiences in first century believers' experience, was not of a nature of the same kind of slavery that modern-day English-speaking Americans would have as their context. And so to avoid that kind of a confusion, the translators will often translate the word servant in English as opposed to slave. So it's important for us to stop a moment and kind of catch the difference because we are 2016 Americans in a modern English context. So we don't want to misunderstand what Peter's writing. We want to know what is this slavery to which he's speaking into and how does it differ from the slavery that's in the, 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 the nearer history of our nation. So let me just kind of lay out for you some characteristics of first century Roman slavery and you'll be able to see the contrast between the kind of slavery that marked the new world in early American history and I think you'll find it to be obvious, some obvious differences. Um, the first thing I, I just want to point out is in the first century, first century Roman Empire, slaves were really a, a separate social class to which there is no real English equivalent. Wayne Grudem writes this. He says, A word stronger than servant would be helpful, but weaker than slave is needed. Something meaning along the lines of semi-permanent employee without legal or economic freedom. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? Nothing like taking one word and making it a whole sentence. Thanks, Wayne Grudem. But it does help. It does help. And he says, No compatible institution exists in modern Western society. Slaves are really a completely separate social class. They were not slaves in the, in the same sense of, of, of what we would understand uh, early American history to, to, to mark as slavery. But it, they were more than just simply willing servants. They were a completely different sort of a group of people. Some commentators would argue that they comprised somewhere between 25 to 40 percent of the entire population. Slaves were the primary workforce in the Roman Empire. They were the primary workforce. It really becomes a second characteristic of, of slaves in first century Roman Empire. The, the, most, the closest equivalent in our culture 
of the relationship between a slave and a master would be the employee-employer relationship. It's not an exact, it's not an exact parallel because obviously in modern-day employer-employee relationships, in our culture, people have a choice, right? You have a choice whether to work for your employer or not or to quit. And employers have a, a choice whether or not to keep you or fire you. So in the first century, it wasn't that way. I mean, you were a slave. A slave was a slave. They were owned. They didn't have the, the freedoms to enter into the relationship of employee-employer like we do. But it's the nearest equivalent that we have and probably the best place to apply what Peter speaks about in this text. But this primary workforce in the first century, slaves, encompassed a very wide degree of functional and economic levels of freedom. And it really all depended upon who their master was. It all depended on who their master was. And another concept that we need to understand is first century slavery was not race-based. It was not, it was not race-based. It was not, it was not revolving around one particular race or ethnicity of people. Um, there were many ways a person could become a slave in the, in the ancient Roman Empire. Many ways that a person could become a slave. One of the most common ways of becoming a slave was, was to be taken in war. The Roman army defeats your army and they take people back and make them slaves. And when they do that, it could be people of all social statuses, people with all kinds of skill levels, people with all kinds of educational levels, people from various races and tribes and tongues of people. So being taken in war was one way to become a slave. You could be kidnapped into slavery. You could be sold into slavery. You could even sell yourself into slavery. And some people would do that from time to time. And then as, as the generations perpetuated, children born to slaves then became property of the slaveholder. And so by the time you get to the time of, uh, of history where Peter is writing, most of the slaves that are present are, are slaves who've been born into slavery. They're, they're generations down the road from those who were taken initially. So one author says it this way. He says, slavery in the Roman Empire was based more on social, economic, and political status than race or ethnicity. So it wasn't particularly a race-based kind of slavery. Another characteristic is it included both skilled and unskilled people. Slaves in the first century could be either skilled, they could be highly trained, very skilled workers, or they could be very unskilled workers and they could be anything in between. They could be anything from common day laborers to managers to overseers to doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, shipbuilders, skilled artisans, craftsmen, or even the city treasurer. Any of those could be slaves in the Roman Empire, skilled or unskilled. Another characteristic is slaves could, they were permitted to own property and to follow their own traditions. They were permitted to do those things on most occasions. And finally, in first century slavery, there were, there were paths to freedom. There were ways to, for slaves to become free. A couple of ways, masters could set their slaves free at their leisure. And oftentimes, when a master would set their slave free, the slave would take on the master's name and could be even granted the same social status as the master. There was a process called manumission, which we just don't have time to go into this morning, where slaves could actually earn and purchase their own freedom over time. But I think you can see just from that simple list that that's a remarkably different concept of slavery than what was going on in early American history in the New World. That kind of slavery was almost, well, it was exclusively race-based. It was centered around one race of people, African Americans, who were primarily kidnapped and primarily made up unskilled labor, who could not own property and had really no real path to freedom. It's important for us to make a couple, I think, notes at this point. It's important for us to note that Peter is not in any way defending the institution of slavery. It's important for us to note that. Peter is not defending this practice, regardless of how it is alike or different from what we have seen in our nation's history. Peter is simply dealing with something that is an assumed reality in his context. There is no moral defense for slavery of any sort. There is absolutely no moral defense for it. It is wrong, absolutely pure and simple. And one of, the, one of the worst blights on the American church and the history of American Christianity is the fact that in the early days of our nation, many people used this very text and held up the scriptures from the Lord Jesus Christ themselves to defend the practice of slavery and shame on them. It's an embarrassment to our faith that people would do such a thing. It's shameful. 
The reality is at the foot of the cross, every single human being has equal dignity and equal value. And there is never any cause for any one person to see themselves as exalted over another simply because of their race or ethnicity or social status, ever. Or ever to treat any other human being as a possession rather than a precious creation of our Heavenly Father. Slavery is dead wrong on every front. Always has been, always will be. Peter is not in any way defending slavery here. He's no way blessing or endorsing it. He's simply telling believing slaves how to live within an entrenched institution in their day over which they had no power to change. None. The question often comes up, why, do, why, do, why is it that Peter and the New Testament writers, why is it that they don't ever push for societal change in this area? Why don't we ever see them writing and railing against the evils of slavery? Why don't we ever see them trying to overturn that particular institution? I can give two answers to this, I think. The first is their primary concern was not social transformation. That was not the primary thrust of what the apostles in the New Testament church, early church, was doing. They were not about social transformation. They were, they were laser-focused, targeting the hearts of individual men and women with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they understood that, that what would eventually happen is that more people who are changed by the gospel, more people whose hearts are captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ and are radically transformed on the inside, the more people that happens to in any particular area, the net result of that is going to be a change in the society and a change in the social structures of that society for the better. But their primary concern was always personal transformation, not societal transformation. And I think a second thing we could say is this. In their context, there was no real power or possibility to change these things. They had no power. They had no ability to change these things. And there was such a tie between the institution of slavery and the economic system of the Roman Empire, it is quite likely that if these early believers had started to rail against this institution, the Romans would have definitely, would have definitely squashed that pretty quickly. They would have seen that as an insurrection in the empire. And they would have no doubt come down very, very, very powerfully upon the early church. They had no power over these kinds of things. And so the context is that. And so Peter writes not to try and overturn a society, but he writes to believing slaves and he instructs them, here is how you're to live underneath this entrenched system that you have no ability and I have no ability to change. And he says to them, here's how you're supposed to do it. And it's a very simple command. He says, be subject to your masters with all respect. Be subject to your masters with all respect. That word subject means submissive. He's saying to them, you need to continually, regularly submit yourself to those who have authority over you. He's describing a, a continual attitude of mental acceptance. A willing heart of obedience to those who have authority over you. He's saying, slaves, there are those that, are in, that, are, that have authority over you. And your responsibility, your responsibility is to submit to that authority. Your submit is to have a willing, obedient, cooperative attitude. Your responsibility is not to assert rights. It's to submit to your masters with respect. You're not to rebel against them. You're not to harbor bitterness against them. You're not to hold grudges against them. You're not to burst out into anger against them. You're not to be as difficult as you can be to deal with to them. You're to submit to them. You're to live in submission to that authority that has been placed over you. You're to have the attitude of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 and following. We're fools for Christ's sake, Paul says. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We become and are still the scum, like scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Same attitude that slaves are to have. However you're treated, your responsibility is to willingly, with a good attitude, without bitterness and anger and grudges, cooperate. Cooperate. And he says to do it with respect. With respect. 
Not, not intentionally provocative, but respectfully submit. Now, that's a challenging command right there on the surface, isn't it? Can you imagine being a first century slave? Living under that kind of, that kind of an environment? And to hear the Apostle Peter say, you have a responsibility. You don't have rights here. You have a responsibility. And your responsibility is to submit to the authority that's been placed over you. That's hard enough for us as 2016 Americans and in a land where we have all sorts of freedom. That's hard enough for us in a workplace where we have a boss and we still have freedom. Isn't it? But Peter doesn't stop there. He makes the command even more challenging. And here's where it gets incredibly challenging. Peter takes it a step further. He says, your responsibility is to submit to that authority. Listen to what he says. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Whoa, Peter, wait a minute. Whoa, you stepped across the line here. What are you saying? Are you saying that I'm to submit to that master that I have no power to do anything over? Are you to say that I'm to submit to him even when he's a jerk? Even when he's rude? Even when he doesn't appreciate me? Even when he assaults me? Even when he treats me in ways that are inhumane? Peter says that's exactly what I mean. He he compares two kinds of masters. Those who are good and gentle and those who are unjust, the ESV says. That word translated unjust is a word that just means crooked. It means bent or crooked. And it speaks of someone metaphorically who's dishonest, evil, unjust, and even has the suggestion of physical mistreatment. The the issue of, of beating is even in the view here of this word. The reality is evil authorities create evil environments, right? That's true in a culture. It's true in a, in a nation. It's true in a city. It's true in a workplace. And it's true in a household. Peter says, some of you are in horrible situations where you have an unjust authority that's been placed over you. And they treat you horribly. There are evil people who treat you in evil ways. So your responsibility is to submit and respect without bitterness, without asserting your rights, without fighting back, without angry outbursts, without retaliation, without harboring grudges. Think about that for a minute. There's one biblical caveat to this instruction that Peter gives that we find in other places in Scripture. And that's simply this one caveat. If the authority that is over us commands us to disobey God, that command must be refused. There was a situation in which slaves could refuse to submit and respect, and that was if the authority over them is commanding them to disobey God. And we have that example in several places, but we have it um, by Peter himself in Acts 5.29 when the authorities that are over him are telling him to stop preaching the gospel, and Peter says to those authorities, we must obey God rather than men. There is an example, there is a precedent for standing up when what's being commanded of us is to disobey God. And if that obedience to God brings painful consequences into our life, as is the case with Sanctus that we read about a moment ago, we're to submit to them. We're not to assert our rights. We're not to assault the authority. We're not to curse and steam and fly off the handle. We're to submit. Let me just stop right here and say this is so countercultural to us, isn't it? Is it making you uncomfortable? You and I live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with our personal rights, with self-assertion, with self-promotion, with litigation, with protest. We're obsessed with being right, and we're obsessed with blasting those who do wrong to us. And any little injustice that happens in our lives, we are quick to blast the one responsible. We, We engage our mouths, and we engage our actions, and we engage our social media. Right? 
We're quick to assert our rights. We're quick to protest. We're quick to rebel. We feel completely justified in our anger. We feel completely justified in our grudges. We feel completely justified in our bitterness. We feel completely justified in our gossip and in our slander and in our angry words and our payback and in our retaliation. And then we go on Facebook and blast to the world what's been done to us so that other people can join us. And if it's serious enough, we race right out and get an attorney. And what do we do? We sue. Because after all, we have rights. We have rights. I'm not saying that that should never be a a resort, a final resort. I'm simply saying that what Peter is arguing here is the opposite of those things. He's arguing that faithful believers to the Lord Jesus Christ in any context that are under authority, even to the point of being a slave under the authority of a master, have a primary responsibility. And that responsibility is not to rebel against the authority, but it's to submit to it. Even if the authority brings unjust suffering into our lives. Did you catch that? So whether you're a citizen under an unjust government or a slave under an unjust master or an employee under an unjust crooked boss or a neighbor next to a crooked, unjust person who brings unjust suffering into your life, Peter says the responsibility we have as Christians is to submit to that. To submit to it, not to fight it, not to rebel against it, not to launch into an angry tirade because we've been violated. I'm going to tell you what Peter is arguing here does not come natural to a single human being that's sitting in this auditorium today. It does not come natural to any of us, none of us. When you get passed over for that promotion and you know that it was politics behind the scenes, not because of your performance, there's a part of you that wants to swell up with anger and wants to wring somebody's neck, right? When you get blamed for things that aren't your fault and there's suffering that comes into your life because of it, there's something within you that wells up that wants to retaliate. There's anger and there's bitterness that begin to swell up. And we feel completely justified in harboring those things. And we feel like we have the right to make it right, whatever the cost. And Peter says, if you're a Christian, you do not. He says, you don't. He says, you have one responsibility, submit to it, even unjust suffering. You say, how is this possible? Let me just tell you this. It will never become the pattern of your life until you understand why it should be that way and how it should happen. And thankfully for us, Peter tells us both of those things here in the rest of this text. The first thing he tells us in verses 19 through 20 is the how. The how. How is it that we're supposed to do this? How can a human being whose rights are being violated, who's suffering unjustly at the hands of an authority that's over them, how can they respond to that person with willful obedience and submission and respect and not anger and violence and pushback? He says this, for this is a gracious thing, verse 19. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit, is it with, if, what credit is it if, when you sin and are being beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The short answer to how? The short answer to how we're to submit when we're suffering unjustly at the hands of an authority? How do we do it? How do we fight our flesh and respond in a godly way? We remember two things. We remember two things that Peter mentions here. The first is this. God is pleased when we endure unjust suffering with grace. Number one, it pleases God. It pleases God. Retaliation pleases me. Submission with grace pleases God. Anger and asserting my rights gives me satisfaction. Submitting with grace and patience gives God great satisfaction. One one response exalts me, the other exalts God. 
That's why Peter says the only way that you can do this is two things, being mindful of God and recognizing that what you're doing is happening in the sight of God. So there's two things. God is pleased when we endure unjust suffering with grace. And secondarily, we remember that God is the great equalizer. God is the great equalizer. In the end, He will make all things right. When we take matters into our own hand and we begin to assert our rights against the authorities, we are acting as though we do not believe that God is either capable or competent to make all things right. We're acting as though we need to do it ourselves. God says, I'm the equalizer. And he's made a promise that in the end, all things will be made right. Not one sin will go unpunished. Not one evil deed by an evil authority will go unpunished or overlooked. The only way that we can answer the question of how, how can we do this? How can we respond that way to unjust suffering is this. We remember, we remember God. We're mindful of God. We recognize that what's happening is happening in the sight of God. And if we, if we obey as Christ has called us to obey, we please Him. And it is a gracious thing, Peter says. And God, we can trust at the end, will make this right. I don't have to take it into my own hands. I don't have to fight back against the authority. God will stand and fight for me when the time is right. And He fights better. He fights better. We do this by being mindful of God. Slaves don't respectfully submit to their evil masters because an evil master deserves it. They don't submit to their evil masters to promote themselves as being super strong. They don't do it out of some sort of stoic indifference. They do it to please God. To please God. And they do it because they have a God who sees all and a God who brings justice, ultimate justice, when it's all said and done. Peter has two things in mind here. He's got a a moral theological issue in mind, and he's got an evangelistic issue in mind. There are two things. Believing slaves can endure unjust suffering because, on the one hand, they want to please God more than they want to assert their rights, and secondly, because they trust in the sovereignty of God. There's nothing that says, I trust in the sovereignty of God, like enduring unjust suffering with closed lips and a patient attitude. There's nothing that says I believe in the sovereignty of God like that. Oh, we can run around and claim we believe in the sovereignty of God all day long. We can talk about election and we can talk about doctrine, but when the rubber hits the road in our lives and there's unjust suffering that comes our way, we're going to respond in a way that that shows the whole world whether we believe God is sovereign or we don't. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 through 21. Beloved, Paul writes, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed them. If he's thirsty, do what? Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. There's that moral theological issue based on the behavior of many of us in response to unjust suffering. I would suggest that our actions say we don't really believe God is sovereign. We don't really believe that he's just and that at the end of time he's going to make it right. Because our actions say we feel like we have to do those things. And the only reason I would feel like I have to do it is because I don't believe he will. There's the moral theological issue, and then there's the evangelistic issue that's behind this. When Christians, in the midst of a hostile culture, live in countercultural ways, a watching world sees that, and they're drawn to our Savior. There's an evangelistic purpose. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and following, Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. There's that word crooked again. Among whom you do what? You shine as lights in the world. 
In the midst of a wicked and crooked generation where where unjust, evil people inflict unjust, evil suffering on people who've done nothing to deserve it, when we patiently endure and submit to the authorities placed over us, trusting and entrusting ourselves to our God, we shine like lights in the darkness. There's an evangelistic thrust to that kind of a behavior. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever one time considered the evangelistic impact of simply submitting to unjust suffering instead of fighting for your rights? Have you ever considered that one time? That there's an evangelistic impact to choosing to submit to unjust suffering rather than asserting your rights. It says something to the world. It says something to the people who watch you. Chuck Swindoll says this, We suffer on behalf of unbelievers who need to see the gospel lived out in everyday lives. Sometimes he's saying God brings suffering, unjust suffering in our lives because there's a a lost world who needs to see what the gospel looks like in the context of suffering. Have you ever considered the possibility that your patient, respectful, submissive response to unjust suffering might very well be your best evangelistic appeal to the people who watch your life. There is nothing, there is nothing that says to our culture more, I belong to Jesus Christ and I am an alien here, than patiently submitting to unjust suffering. Nothing says I belong to Jesus more than that. You say, how do you know that? How can you make such a statement? Because Peter makes that statement in verses 21 through 23 at the very end of this text. He gives us the why. The command is submit respectfully even to unjust authorities. To do it patiently without revolting, without rebelling, without sinning against them. You're to do it how? You're to do it how? By being mindful of God and remembering that God is watching and that God is in control, control, that He's sovereign, that He'll make all things right. You don't have to. And the reason why you do that, He says in verse 21, for to this you've been called. To this you've been called. This is what God's called you to. He's called you to this because Christ suffered for you. And He's left you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He suffered. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Two answers to the why should I submit to unjust suffering that way. The first is, this is what you were called to. When you became a Christian, you were called to suffering. Do you know that? We don't tell people that when we do evangelism, do we? When we share the gospel, we don't tell them that. You're a sinner who needs to come to Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, when you do this, you're going to be called to suffer. We don't do that. We save that for later, after they're already in the door, right? Oh, yeah, by the way, maybe we've got that backwards, right? You've been called to this. You've been called to this. Christians should expect suffering, should expect unjust suffering. That is the the constant, consistent testimony of the New Testament all throughout. We don't have time this morning to trace that all out. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, we'll get there eventually, he talks about suffering. And he says that this suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood all throughout the world. Christians all throughout the world are dealing with this. If you're dealing with unjust suffering today, you're not alone. Your brothers everywhere are dealing with this. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. It comes with the territory. You've been called, in fact, to this. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, Paul says, This is the kind of thing, these afflictions, we're destined for this. Jesus said it succinctly in John chapter 15. He says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You're called to suffer. You know what? We're so insulated from it in our culture. We're so insulated from most unjust suffering other than petty little silly things. When something real comes along, we're just shocked and appalled. What in the world is this? I'm suffering. And it's not fair. What am I to do? I'm going to scream and yell and kick and scream. I'm going to get somebody for this. We've got to put a stop to it now. As though some weird thing has happened to us. If we read our Bibles, we'd know that 
historically and even around the world right now, that's the exception and not the rule. Answer number one, unjust suffering is our calling. And the most important answer to why, why do we submit to authorities who bring unjust suffering? Because this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. That's what he says, right? Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you'd follow in his footsteps. That word example is a wonderful word. It's the word that was used for teaching children to write by placing letters underneath, letters underneath a piece of paper so that they could trace the letter and learn how to write. That's the word for example here. And, and, and Peter is saying Jesus is our example. When we trace our lives by him, we get it right. We get it right. Jesus is the template upon which we trace our lives in the moments when suffering comes. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. We don't have time this morning, but Peter, not exclusively, but he um, uh, deliberately quotes from Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. And it's the only place in the New Testament where that, that particular passage is particularly applied to Jesus. You can read that for your own self later. But he describes Jesus' experience on our behalf. Committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus Christ was the perfect Son of God. He never did anything to deserve one ounce of, of suffering. He never did one thing to deserve the way he was treated, did he? He never sinned with his mouth. He never sinned with his behavior. He never sinned with his attitude. He was the perfect Son of God, an example of sinless perfection. He did nothing to deserve it. The suffering that was brought upon him, any suffering that was brought upon him, was unjust suffering because he was perfect and did nothing to deserve anything but goodness and kindness in response. He was humble and he was gracious. He always spoke the truth. He always acted rightly toward other people. He was perfect. And yet he was reviled and he was hated. He was perfect, and yet he was rejected and mocked. He was unjustly accused. He was arrested, and he was put on a farcical trial. He was brutally beaten to a bloody pulp. He was mocked, and he was ridiculed, and he was spit upon, and he was crucified on a Roman cross. The one who truly did not deserve anything received it all, and he bore it with perfect, patient submission, without one ounce of retaliation without one ounce of an outburst of anger, without ever one time screaming out, this is not fair, I don't deserve this, without ever one time uttering threats back at his accusers. The perfect, sinless Son of God endured unjust suffering to a degree you and I could never possibly ever imagine or experience. And his response to that was perfect, patient Submission. Perfect patient submission. He didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten. He just continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did he do? Every step along the way, he continued entrusting himself to his father. He continually, every time it happened, Father, I'm entrusting my life to you. You are the sovereign one. You are the one who makes all things right. I don't have to defend myself. You can defend me. I'm entrusting myself to you and whatever you allow to come into my life. I'll submit to. Matthew 26, verses 66 through 68. What is your judgment, they answered. He deserves death. They spit in his face and they struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Chapter 27, verse, 4, verse 12 and following. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Verse 28, they stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and they took the reed and they struck him on the head and when they would mocked him they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him verse 39 those who passed by derided him 
wagging their heads and saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. The chief priests and scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from that cross. We'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. How did our Savior respond? Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Not one threat, not one angry outburst, not one single assertion of his rights, not one ounce of rebellion. Patient submission to unjust suffering. And Peter says that's our example. You want to know why that should be our response? Because that's our example. It's the way of Jesus. Our time is way up. Let's just bring this home real personal for a second. We're living in a culture that's becoming more and more hostile to the cause of Christ. And there are going to be more and more instances in our insulated lives where our faith comes into the crosshairs of the culture or the workplace or various environments and relationships in our lives. And the net result is going to be suffering that we don't deserve. The question is, how are we going to respond to that? Are we going to respond to that by asserting our rights and demanding our way? Are we going to respond to that by, by, by pushing back and threatening those who threaten us? Or will we follow Jesus' template? Let me ask you a couple questions. What's your natural reaction to unfair treatment? If I were to ask your spouse, if I were to ask your children, if I were to ask the people that work in your office, how does she respond when she's treated unfairly? How does he react when things don't go his way? What they say to me, she looks like Jesus. She's patient. He's kind. He does what he's supposed to do without a fight. Is that what they would say about you? Let me ask you another question. How might non-Christians perceive Christ and Christianity based on the way you react to suffering? How might unbelievers, how might they, what might they think of Christ and Christianity by the way you respond to unjust suffering? Will they see something different than they see in the world? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves this morning. And I suspect that those questions pierce your heart as profoundly as they pierce my own. And if they do, then when we close our eyes in just a moment, we've all got some repentance to do before the Lord. And we've also got some pleading before the Lord for the help of the Holy Spirit to change us in ways that we have no power to change ourselves. And to make us be able to trace our lives according to the pattern of Jesus rather than the pattern of our culture and rather than the pattern of our own passions and desires that wage war within us. I pray that the Lord would help us change in this area particularly. If He does, the world will see something different in us and they'll want Jesus in return. Let's pray that that would be the result. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you. We stand in absolute, utter amazement of you. To think about the unjust suffering you endured. To think about the hatred and the vitriol that was poured upon you. To think about the derision and the angry words and the spite and the nastiness that was poured out on you. To think about the physical abuse 
to think about the unjust, unfair, untrue accusations that were leveled at you. To think about the unimaginable pain of beating and crucifixion and the mockery and the spitting in your face. And never one time did you fight back. Never one time did you assert your rights. Just continually submitted yourself to the Father. Trusting Him to make right what's wrong. Setting an example for us. When we look at your response, Lord, we look at our own selves and we can't help but say, it seems impossible. It seems impossible. Everything within us wants to do something different than that. Everything we've been taught in our culture teaches us to do something other than that. It's only by your grace and the power of your Spirit, right this moment, that you can change us and make us like that. And so we pray in this moment that that's exactly what you would do because you promised you could and you would. Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, make us like you. Help us to, in this very moment, drop our rights at the altar and surrender them before you and pick up the mantle of our responsibility to honor you in every situation of our lives. May we abandon every ounce of self-assertion and humble ourselves before you that the world might see something different in us and be drawn to you. Lord, for those who don't know you this morning, I pray that they would look at how you responded to such unjust treatment and realize that you did that on their behalf and that in this moment they can confess their sin to you, embrace you as Lord and Savior, and be saved forever. May they fly to you in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.